For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Over 5 million people play football in the USA and here to bring it to you in the raw, uncut, unadulterated is the undisputed number one sports show in Atlanta and abroad. 100 yards of football live from headquarters. It's more than a game, more than a show. It's where football blends culture, economics, and society. Tap in, tune in, and lock in to 100 yards of football now. Our partners at Bet Online continue to be the number one source for all of your betting needs and sports info. Find all the latest odds, news, and sports development, including this year's basketball championship finals, the NHL hockey conference finals, Major League Baseball, the latest fighting news, and even next season's early NFL futures. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code BELIEVE to get the bonus and get into the action. Bet online where the game starts. Ladies and gentlemen, a very pleasant good evening to you. Welcome to 100 Yards of Football, where tonight we have a very special NCAA history session. Tonight, college football host and insider Chris Goforth joins Vincent Turner with a big takeaway on the Tennessee Volunteers here in the 2022 from an analysis in projection of this year, as well as Tennessee history. Stick and stay for a wonderful day. It's Chris Goforth and Vincent Turner here on 100 Yards of Football. Stick and stay as well for the paralysis of an analysis. Chris Goforth goes in on the Atlanta Falcons. Man, man, man. I'd like to say thank you this evening. It's like... When you grow up as I do in Memphis, Tennessee, and you be you 61 years old, and then you become 62 on July 17th, you're like a kid in the in the cookie jar. You're stealing cookie from your grandmother because today we got, as you heard, that great introduction. We got a gentleman that's doing this at a high level on one of the major radio stations. I want everybody to hear this. One of the major radio stations in the nation. Number nine in the market. And I have him on 100 yards of football with me this evening. And not only the blessing, he's from the great state of Tennessee, baby. Six million people. Can I say Alvin York? Can I say David Crockett? Can I say Isaac Hayes? So I'm going to put him in all the great Tennesseans, Mr. Chris Goforth. And I don't have to say no more. I listened to him all throughout football season doing the Atlanta Falcons post-game and pre-game shows. I'm honored. I'm blessed. And I'm thankful. So let me bring him up. My man, Chris Goforth. How you doing this evening, sir? I Man, after that introduction, how can I be anything other than great? It's, uh, <laughs> it's always fun to be with you and appreciate the invite. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So if you like the video this evening, and you watching this video right now, share the video because it's royalty at its highest level. It's talent at its highest level. It's like going to the first round of the NFL draft and you got the top five picks and you got a gentleman in front of you like Mr. Goforth ready to go. And you know the good tidbit about it? He's from my state. We're on the upper echelon. He's from East Tennessee. I'm from West Tennessee, but we have one goal in place. We are Tennessee football fans. So, Chris, let's talk a little history about the University of Tennessee. I'm going to let you start off. Start off what team you want to highlight this evening. Uh, well, you want to start with the obvious maybe and, and do the national championship team in, in 98? Let's talk uh, about them, my man. 
Yeah, I mean, that was one of those years where, you know, there was so much hype and talk about Peyton Manning when he was there in, in 1997. And then, you know, Manning leaves and T. Martin, uh, an Alabama native, that Philip Fulmer was able to go down to the state of Alabama and, and kind of steal one and get him to come to Knoxville. And, and T. really became the ingredient that that, that team needed. Um, obviously having that tremendous defense that year and how well they played was huge. And then, you know, I, one thing I think when you go back and, and you take a look at a, at a national championship year, in order for that to happen, I think there's certain things that have to happen. You know, there's, there's gotta be, there's a moment or two over the course of the year when things just go your way. And that's what that Tennessee team was able to get. Clint Sterner, uh, the Arkansas's quarterback that year, uh, tripped up, fumbled the ball, and uh, as Arkansas was was ready to knock Tennessee off that year and, and out of the unbeatens, and uh, Tennessee was able to record the fumble, and then you know the rest is uh, the rest is history for them. So I think you kind of have to have moments like that sometimes when you're a uh, a national championship winning team. For me personally, when you look at that 98 season, Chris, I got to go back to the first game of the year, Syracuse. They beat a very good Syracuse, 34-33. T. Martin starting his first game of the year. We really didn't know what we had in T. Martin. He had waited his time for four years. And you got a team, you don't know what you got offensively. And then you're playing against a guy who ended up going to the National Football League. I don't have to say his name no more. Donovan McNabb and did pretty well with the Philadelphia Eagles. But I think going into the carrier dome, going up there to play in a school like Syracuse, can I say Ernie Davis? Can I say Jim Brown? And playing with all those fans in the carrier dome and able to step away with that opening win, that's what I'm going to take from that. And being really having a big lead in that game, and then letting that lead scrum away and then win that game in the fourth quarter. And then, of course, finally, finally, getting over the hump with the Florida Gators from Knoxville, 20-17, to 17, winning that football game because that was the only team back in the mid-'90s, if you can agree with me, Chris, that really kept Tennessee yeah. from really getting over the hump. Yeah, no, you're, you're 100% right. I mean, Florida was the team they just could not – you know, Steve Spurrier had their number um, back then. And that, you know, if Tennessee could have won another game or two in the 90s against Florida, I don't know if how many other, how many more national championships they would have won, but certainly they would have been in position to play for another one or two had they been able to win that game. And then you look at the Auburn game where Jamal Lewis tore his knee up, was out for the season. Tennessee won that football game 17 to 9, but it, if you notice, there's a lot of people around the program, of course, throughout the state was questioning. Now we lost arguably our best football player. And, you know, back then, Tennessee relied a lot on Jamal Lewis, and he was really informed in that Auburn game. And then losing him and then have to come over, sorry, dog fans, but start doing that eating and coming over to Athens on Saturday for a national televised audience. Quincy Carter playing at a high level, and Georgia was coming off a big win over LSU. Remember that? And then you had a safety by the now. I think his name was Kirby Smart. And Tennessee going over there, and you just mentioned that defense dominated, and I'm coming away 22 to 3. At that point, I said, maybe they got something special. You know, the guy that's kind of underappreciated on that team is. Uh, or I think nationally, when people talk about great linebackers, uh, is Al Wilson. Now, to you know, to Tennessee fans and anybody that follows Tennessee football, Al Wilson is a he's a bona fide legend uh, in in Tennessee football. But I don't think people, I don't think Al has ever gotten the recognition or enough attention that he deserves for what he meant to that team. And it wasn't just as a guy, you know, who was you know, the big hitter on defense, but, but Al was really the heart and soul of that team. I mean, you talk to any of those guys that played, uh, Al was the unquestioned leader in that locker room. Uh, and Al was the guy that made sure that everybody else was ready to play 
come Saturday. Well, when you talk about the defensive side, we've talked about this off air. A gentleman from your area, and you saw him play in high school, Eric Westmoreland was a good player, my man. Then you had Deion Grant out of Augusta. Then, who I think was the top cornerback in the country, Dwayne Goodrich, was like, locked down, locked the door. He was playing very well. And then Tennessee had two guys that played big time in the NFL, Sean Ellis and Darren Walker. Like you said, Chris, their defense was lights out. And I think when I look at it from a standpoint, we could talk about T. Martin. We could talk about so many things. But that defense had what I call NFL playmakers. Yeah. Yeah. And, they, you know, uh, it was a bunch of guys that, that, you know, the one thing that Tennessee had at that time, and that was about the time, I think, towards the late 90s, John Chavis, his defensive makeup – kind of started to change a little bit. The one thing that that Chavis always did when he was in Tennessee is he always seemed to recruit and coach good linebackers. That was kind of his forte. Um, and, and he, you know, Tennessee always wanted to play man coverage. Uh, you're going to hang those corners out in man, and then he was going to depend on that front seven to go get after the quarterback. And somewhere there, mid to late 90s, Tennessee kind of started making the – the switch over to leaner, more athletic guys. You mentioned Eric Westmoreland. Lean, athletic, was a running back in high school, a guy that could really run, had great anticipation on the ball. Ray Knock Thompson, uh, another linebacker on that team. Lean, athletic, could run. Those were the type guys that Tennessee was recruiting defensively at that time because – I, I, you know, now we see a lot of linebackers built like those guys. Uh, but back then, a lot of people were still playing, you know, 240-pound, 235-pound guys at linebacker. Tennessee was running guys out there that were about 220 that could run and hit, that could cover, um, and were all solid tacklers. And that linebacking group, again, led by Al Wilson, there is no doubt, that linebacking group at, at Tennessee that year, and, and I think Tennessee has a, a really great history of, of good linebackers going, you know, way back. We're going to talk about, you know, Steve Conner and, and Dale Jones and, and Hacksaw Reynolds and some of these other guys later. But, you know, Tennessee really has a, a nice history of great linebacker play. One other thing about that Tennessee team in 1998 is that when they needed a big play, T. Martin seemingly was able to make that deep ball throw. Peerless Price seemed to play pretty well when it came up to big games. And then a young man, a sophomore, where I'm from, from Orange Mound, the 901. Matter of fact, he's coaching his old high school. Cedric Wilson played very well as a sophomore. But I just mentioned the D-line. But really, from an offensive standpoint, the offensive line should get their flowers. Kosey Coleman played very well that year. Spencer Riley played very well. The young man that went on to the Green Bay Packers, Chad Clifton played real well. And Mercedes Hamilton played real well. That's what I take away from the offense. Because what Tennessee did, they pound, 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 baby. And it brings me back. It brought me back to, if you know anything about Tennessee football, what you do, when Tennessee has been real good and been able to run the football, you think about Antoine Davis. You think about Charles McCray. You think about Chuck Whale. You think about Johnny Jones. The running game, baby. Yeah. And I, I think Tennessee's offensive line has always been better when they had kids from in the state that played on that offensive line. Um, you know, you had guys, you know, Spencer Riley. He was a, he was a Tennessee kid, grew up wanting to run through that tee. Uh, there were other guys on that offensive line that grew up, you know, in the state of Tennessee. When when Tennessee had – and, uh, you know, Philip Fulmer was a good offensive line coach. Winchester, still, Winchester yeah, Tennessee. Yeah, he was from, from Winchester, Tennessee. And so, um, you know, that was one of the things, even while he was the head coach, Fulmer would, you know, he would go put his hand in the ground and and work with those offensive linemen. That was kind of what he what he enjoyed doing, uh, even after he became the head coach. And that that group at Tennessee that year in particular, that was a, a pretty special group. Uh, and the characters on that uh, on that team, Spencer Riley was a uh, 
you know, I used to go up on on every uh, every Tuesday uh, for uh, Coach Fulmer's press conference there in in the uh, sports complex uh, there in on, on campus, and uh, you know they would make certain players available to the media uh, every week, and and there were some guys, man, you know. You wanted a you wanted a funny quote. Spencer was the guy that you went to because uh, he had the he was never afraid to share the dirt on any of his teammates or uh, to, to have a good story from the from the previous game. You may have to bleep some of the language out with him, but he was always an entertaining guy. What was you at on the great night, January the second, when Tennessee won the national championship? What what was you at, my man? And I was, being yeah, I was, I was at home, uh, pretty much doing what everybody else in the state of Tennessee did whenever a Tennessee game was on. Uh, I had the TV on, the sound was muted and I had John Ward on the radio and, uh, uh, that's how we, uh, that's how we did it that night was, uh, I think, uh, my girlfriend and I had, uh, I think we went to an early dinner. And uh, and then came back home in time to to be able to uh, to watch that game, and um, that's that's one of those that I have uh, every time it's on, I still have to I still have to pause and and watch it again. I'm gonna ask you two questions. The first question I want you to think about it. We'll take from that game. What was the most special moment of Tennessee winning that football game? But I'm gonna make some people mad tonight. Tell the people why John Ward was the best announcer in all of football. And tell the people out this is for you dog fans since y'all come at me. Why is he better than Larry Munson? Well, I, look, I think uh, there was at that time in the SEC, you had a uh, you had so many great announcers uh, at that time. John Ward was there, Larry Munson, um, Paul Jack Eels. Crystal. Jack, Jack Crystal, Crystal was at Mississippi State. Paul right. Eels was at was at Arkansas. Joe Ferguson, LSU. Yep, yep. You had some really, really great announcers. So, uh, you know, I think whoever you grow up listening to, and kind of where I grew up, I got a chance to hear both John Ward and Larry Munson uh, growing up. Now, being a Tennessee fan, uh, I was always a little more. Um, you know, uh, probably leaned a little bit more towards John. Uh, John had a way, and I think all the great announcers do. Uh, Munson had it as well. He just did it in a different way. But they have a way of taking you inside that stadium. And when John Ward would, at the start of that, you know, just before the, the start of the game, when he would talk about, you know, the band on the field and they form the T and the University of Tennessee volunteers are amassed down in the end zone uh, and the crowd rises to their feet as the band plays Rocky Top and then the band marches down the field and the T opens and here they come and ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are and wherever you're listening, it's football time in Tennessee. Man, it doesn't get much more special than that. And uh, doesn't get much more college football uh, than that. Um, the other thing about John Ward, too, and I think with a lot of those guys, you know, Munson as well, people get so caught up in the color of uh, of the personality of it. And, the you know, the hunker down, you hairy dogs, and the, and the give him six and all of that. And, you know, it's it's funny, and I've, I've, I've told this story before to people, but if you will drive – on a Friday night, flip over to the AM dial and just drive I-75. Drive it from somewhere in Tennessee and come down 75 into the state of Georgia. And everybody broadcasting a high school football game on that side of, of 75, they all sound exactly like John Ward. And on the other side, they're all trying to sound exactly like Larry Munson. <laughs> what those guys miss that Ward didn't miss, that Munson, you know, Jack Crystal, Paul Eels, none, Jim Fife at Auburn, those guys didn't miss is they were all phenomenal tacticians of the job. You never, whenever you listen to John Ward, you never wondered where the ball was. 
you never wondered what was happening because he always described it eloquently and beautifully, whether it was a, a simple run up the middle, uh, if it was Peyton on a play action throwing deep, you always he always had a way of painting that picture, and you always knew exactly where the ball was and and what was going on. And for all of the you know the give him six and it's football time in Tennessee and yada 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 that people get so caught up in, John Ward's ability to you know you know, the way he would count it down as the guy ran the yard lines, you know, he's at the five, the four, the three, the two, the one, where is he in the end zone touchdown to, you know, those kind of things just made him so, so special, but his ability to be able to describe the game, we're going to talk about that 85 sugar bowl team too. Uh, that was in it. Same deal. Mute the sound on the on the TV. Turn John at Ward up on the radio. I was uh, that uh, '85 game. I was 12 years old, Vince. I I made my dad mm-hmm. take me to the um, like the whatever the the five and dime store was in town. Might have been a Dollar General store. I don't I don't remember what it was. We had to go down to the town because I had to go buy a pack of blank cassette tapes. So mm-hmm. I could record that game, not on VHS. I recorded it on cassette tape so I could have John Ward's call of it. Take the special moment at Tennessee win the national championship that evening. Uh, you know, I, I guess it was the the long pass to Peerless. I mean, that was kind of the moment, I think, when you knew they got this game. Uh, when when T. Martin hits Peerless Price on that long touchdown pass, you knew uh, Tennessee had that game. Um, and then the one thing I'll remember from the the post game uh, is that you know Philip Fulmer and I, I'm a Philip Fulmer fan at least as a head coach. Now we can you know his job as a athletic director is is uh, something else, but as a head coach um, for a lot of the you know the crap that he took the, you know, that he couldn't beat Florida, that he, he couldn't win the big one, that he could recruit, but they didn't play well. Um, for all of those things that had all the criticism that Fulmer had had to take for him to grab that gold or that crystal ball that night and hold it up over his head uh, to celebrate that national championship. Those are the two images from that night that are forever uh, kind of burned into my memory. The 85 team. Love it. Tell you Love a little it. story. It was my first year moving to Knoxville. I had a sister that attended the University of Tennessee. She dated a guy on the football team. Things didn't work out, and she ended up marrying a guy from Knoxville. I moved up there. I was a young 25-year-old. Never knew the culture or what the history of Tennessee football was. And I tell you, man, the first game, I went to the UCLA game. Ended up 26-26 a tie. But I tell you what, the quarterback from Leon High School, by way of Tallahassee, Florida, I knew he was a special player. Then coming back the next week against Auburn, national television, Auburn ranked number one. Got the big bad man right outside. Birmingham, Bo Jackson. And man, let me tell you something. Chris, sometimes I'll go back and pull up YouTube, that YouTube, that football game. And boy, Tony Robinson, if he wouldn't have got hurt that year, it's no question in my mind he wouldn't have won the Heisman Trophy. And that game against Auburn had to be one of the best football games I've seen a Tennessee football player play. And that Tennessee offense, Tim McGee. Eric Swanson, Joy Klinskales, Keith Davis. And to give you another tidbit, the starting right tackle, Bruce Wilkerson, that was from Philadelphia, Tennessee, I was married to his first cousin. That 85 team was special, man. Break it down for us. Yeah, that look, that that team was, um, they were unbelievable. Um, it was a great story. You know, Johnny Majors came back to Tennessee as the head coach in 1977, and and t- Tennessee was in a 
you know, just kind of this funk where uh, football was concerned. They hadn't been very good since, uh, really, since Doug Dickey left. Uh, Bill Battle was able to, you know, have some success there for a year or two, but things were headed in the wrong direction. Battle gets fired. Majors has Tony Dorsett winning the Heisman Trophy, and Pitt wins the national championship with Majors as the head coach, and then the alma mater calls and the chance for, for Johnny to come home, which he does. Tennessee was lacking in facilities. They were lacking in everything when Majors got to Tennessee, and it was a it was a long battle for him, and it was one that I don't know that in today's era of college football that Johnny Majors would have been given or would be given the opportunity to have as long as he did. Uh, Majors was, you know, year eight uh, going into that season. And he needed something good to happen that year. Uh, you mentioned Tony Robinson. Tony Robinson was special. Tony Robinson, when you played football outside in the backyard, you wanted to be – Tony Robinson was who you wanted to be um, because T-Rob was just a special, special talent. Vince, I agree with you. He was – he would have won the Heisman Trophy that year. I think he was the best player in college football at that time. He was the most dynamic quarterback in college football, and uh, I think he's the most athletic quarterback Tennessee's ever had. I mean, you know, I think I think Tony did things with the ball that Tennessee still hadn't seen guys do. Uh, it's unfortunate that injury kind of ended things for him in, in Knoxville, but uh, Tony Robinson was was unreal. You can't talk about that team and, and not talk about the defense because they had – so many guys that that came up and, and made big plays. Dale Jones, who had already made a name for himself by tipping a, a pass and then intercepting it. Uh, I think it was a Mike Shula pass against Alabama that helped Tennessee seal a victory over Alabama when they hadn't beaten Alabama in what seemed like forever. Uh, and so for, you know, Dale Jones, is an, who's later gone on and had a really nice coaching career, uh, was a part of that team, a guy that was from uh, Cleveland, Tennessee, and Chris White, who had an interception uh, in that Sugar Bowl game against Miami. Um, and then Charles Davis, who folks now know as uh, an NFL analyst with the NFL Network and his, his uh, you know, game analysis work with, with Fox TV. Uh, Charles Davis was, a, uh, was in that Tennessee secondary as well. That was a that was a very fun team, and as I told you when, when we talked about these teams before uh, a couple of days ago, but before we, we got together here, you know, if, if 95, 85 doesn't happen, 97 probably doesn't happen because I think in, you know, 1985 bought Johnny Majors a little bit of leeway with the Tennessee Boosters, and it allowed him to turn things around, which he did midway through the 88 season, and from that point on, Tennessee really didn't look back uh, until 2009, when um, you know when when Philip Fulmer was uh, was fired. But uh, it all started with what Johnny Majors did, and he was able to parlay a nice Sugar Bowl win against Miami into a heck of a recruiting class. And look at that that 1986 recruiting class. Look at what those guys did in '89 and '90 and how good they were. He had one young man that was in that 86 recruiting class. It was the player of the year in the state of Tennessee in 3A football. Vincent Moore, who played quarterback, ended up playing wide receivers. Good you brought that up. And um, But for me, the 85 season is the Sugar Bowl win because they played Big Bad Miami, the U, Vinny Testaverde, Jerome Brown, Michael Irvin, and dominated, dominated. And Derek Dickey, let's give him credit. Yeah, he came in in a tough situation, and Tennessee didn't miss a beat offensively. Yeah, Daryl uh, Dickey, he kind of, uh, he kind of like, uh, he was the original game manager, wasn't he? Yes, uh, you sir. know, he came in. You know, uh, T. Rob was this dynamic playmaker and did all these things, and and uh, you know, Dickey wasn't that impressive looking of an athlete, but what he could do is get the ball where it needed to be, not make mistakes, and let his offensive line, his defense, do the work, and they did. And those guys, uh, offensively, those guys did 
you know, tremendous work out of that offensive line that year to give him time to be able to throw. He did have some talented receivers uh, that could do some things after the catch. But you're right. Uh, he did a uh, he did a heck of a job. And then finally, the 69 team, the team that broke my heart, <laughs> nine years old. That team right there was headed to play for a national championship, man, plain and simple, and was a two-touchdown favorite over Ole Miss. But Ole Miss had that young man, um, I think his name is Archie, out of Drew, yeah. Mississippi, yeah. Um, about 18 miles from where my mother's from in Sunflower. And I'm going to tell you a true story, Chris. That day, I was so confident at nine years old, I went out with my father. He used to work on Saturdays. He was getting his dry cleaning business together. And I, I grew up working in the dry cleaning business. I was so confident Tennessee was going to win that football game because they had beat Alabama that year, 41 to 14. Alabama team, they had Scott Hunter and Johnny Musso. Well, that Alabama team had beaten no Miss on the first college football game televised in prime time. Yeah. But I really underestimated the young man from Drew because I remember in that Alabama game, first game televised at night, he had 106 yards rushing and he had 436 yards passing. But the only reason I had Tennessee probably win that game easily is because they had played Ole Miss the year before in Knoxville and he had like a five interception game. When I got home, the kickoffs back in the day was about 1.30 Central Standard Time, leaving, leaving East Tennessee for about 2.30 your time. At halftime, John Ward in his elegant voice, it's going to be halftime, Ole Miss 24, Tennessee 0. I dropped to the floor and I could not believe it. <laughs> I say, what has happened? And Ole Miss went on and went, won that game 38 to nothing. And that was a Tennessee team that was really good. You mentioned the two linebackers, Steve Counter and Jack Hacksaw Reynolds. They had Jackie Walker, who's another good linebacker. They had Lester McClain. And they had Bobby Scott. They had Kurt Watson. They had a sophomore guard that was second team by the name of Phil Foreman. And for them to lose that football game, it just broke my heart. And then Tennessee ended up going to the Gator Bowl at the end of the year, losing to Florida, 14-13. And Darrell Dickey, the Tennessee head coach, after the game becomes the Florida head coach. How bad yeah. can you get? How much bad luck can you have that year, Chris? Yeah. No, you're you're uh, you're 100% right. That was – and look, that was one of those where Dickey had kind of had Tennessee on the cusp for a couple of years. Um, you know, we, you talk about 69, 68, that wasn't a bad team either. Just had a, what was it? A, a loss or two and a tie somewhere. They lost to, they lost to Auburn that year, but they had beaten Alabama that year. Um, they ended up taking on Texas, uh, the previous year in the bowl game. And, and that was a really good Texas team. And, and they took it to Tennessee pretty good. That was in 68, 67. They had been pretty good. I mean, Dickey had this tremendous run at Tennessee up until, like you said, that season when it ended, come 1970, he was on the sidelines in Gainesville. And, and as we mentioned before, uh, you know, it took Tennessee, um, you know, about 18, 19 years to really find its way back again. I've wondered, Vince, really, what would Tennessee football have been in the 70s if Dickey would have stuck around? Because he had things on the right track there. And I mean, I've, you know, would he have been able to keep it going? Would would we talk about Tennessee in the 70s the same way we talk about Alabama in the 70s? You know, I, I don't know. But Tennessee was a really good program under Doug Dickey. He didn't have that kind of success at Florida either. It was a situation, you know, he played quarterback at Florida back in the 50s. That was his school. As they say, he wanted to come home. Um, that's an interesting point. Of course, I think he would have had Tennessee during that time. I think Tennessee would have won one national championship. I just I just feel he had brought Tennessee to the cusp. But when he left, 
there was a lot of rumble to see who they was going to hire. And they shocked everybody when they hired a 28-year-old Bill Battle. And yeah. the thing that I don't understand, Bill Battle, his first year there, had a pretty good team. I think they went 10-1 and and 70. Yeah. Then they came back 10-2 and and 70, believe 72. And then he had a young man coming from Huntsville in by the name of Country Holloway. You just, in my heart, you just knew Tennessee was it was getting ready to really, really get over the hump, but it just didn't happen. Yeah, the wheels came off. Yeah. The wheels and, came off. Hey, that was just basically it. I was really disappointed in the three years Conjure Holloway was the quarterback. I really thought that he had a chance and Tennessee had a chance to really, really make some bones in the conference. And if you go back, Tennessee came out of the gates. Condrich Holloway's junior year, they played Alabama in the national game of the week. Alabama, I believe, was one and two in the country. Tennessee was five, and they played in Birmingham. Excellent football game. Alabama got up in the game 21 to none. Tennessee fought back, tied it at 21-21, and then Alabama. Wayne Willer, I believe that's the gentleman's name, took a punt. Back for a touchdown. Now, it wasn't Wayne Willer. I, I, I take that back. But I remember it was a young man that took a punt back in the fourth quarter, put Alabama on 28-21, and then Whipper Jackson went mm-hmm. 80 yards, 35-21. Tennessee came unglued, and Alabama won, and won that game 42-21. They went on and played in the Sugar Bowl against Notre Dame for the national championship that season. Tennessee ended up 7-3-2, and, and from that point on, the football program kind of started really spiring out of control. Yeah. And what I remember about that Tennessee team, most of all, not only Conjure Holloway, but they had a, a tight end that was very colorful. And the state of Georgia was mad at him. He ended up coaching at Clemson, ended up coaching at the University of Memphis, Memphis the gentleman by the name of Tommy West. Mm-hmm. And that's Head coach at Chattanooga for a while, too. Yes, sir. That's what I remember about Tommy West, uh, him being on that football team. And, of course, that was, to me, the last team of the 70s that had a chance to be really good. And Conjure Holloway's junior year, and that team ended up 7-3-2. and two. You know, the, the Bill Battle uh, era at Tennessee is, is one that, uh, you know, Condridge is probably the bright spot from it, honestly. You know, when you start in, you know, I've talked to guys that have played baseball against him that have told me swear up and down, you know, that he was a better baseball player than he was a football player. He did both at Tennessee. And, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and they say that he was, he was a much better, um, much better baseball player than he was a, uh, a football player. But, you know, there's so many firsts that happened at Tennessee during the Dickey era, um, Tennessee got artificial turf on Shield Watkins mm-hmm. Field, the game in, against Georgia. I guess it was in 68, maybe, was the first game ever played, first college football game uh, that was uh, was played on that. I think it was called Titan Turf is what they is what they called it back then. Uh, Tennessee had a, a guy named Lester McLean in 67, I believe, who was the first African-American to ever start an SEC game uh, for the University of Tennessee. So there were a lot of significant milestones uh, that occurred during Dickey that go beyond just the, you know, just the wins and the losses kind of things that I think deserve to be mentioned. And, and again, I've always wondered what happens if he sticks around with the trajectory that he had Tennessee on. Well, it's been very, very honorable and very nice to talk to the University of Tennessee football history over the last 30 minutes. We could talk all night about the great players, the school. We call it the Hill. When I come out of Memphis, we're going to the Hill. Like I said, it's dear to my heart. I have a nephew that graduated in 2006. And the most important thing when you think about Tennessee football is special, and you have to be a Tennessee fan because if you're not, you don't know where we're coming from. You can't experience it. But we're going to switch gears. As I told you, Chris, I want to talk about the Atlanta Falcons. But when I get into the Falcons, I want to put something on you and want to ask you something because I know this is going to make you proud. You got two daughters that I found out, and they're very strong academically. 
So talk about them real quick before we go into the Falcons. Yeah, I've got one that is a uh, a rising senior, and uh, she is, a matter of fact, getting ready to uh, to go to London for about nine days next month. Uh, she's my lacrosse player, and uh, I I told her I said you you pick the one sport Daddy knows nothing about. So I've uh, I've learned a lot about lacrosse over these. Uh, I thought she was going to be a volleyball player because uh, that's what she had played growing up, but she fell in love with lacrosse, and and so we've all kind of. Uh, uh, fell in love with it too. And she's had a, uh, she's had a lot of fun playing it and she's done really well academically, um, really this year. And not that she hadn't done well previously, but I think this year was when it really started to hit, Hey, college is coming. And, uh, I'm, you know, super proud of just how hard she worked and what she did. And then my youngest is headed into the eighth grade. She's my dancer. She's made the school dance team now for the second straight year. And, uh, and she's, a she's a straight, straight A student and, um, just a, uh, I'm, I'm very blessed. They are both, um, I don't know where they got their, where they got their brains from. They, they didn't get it from dad, but, uh, they are both very, very, very good kids and, and just really proud of them. Let's talk about the Atlanta Falcons, man. Let's get to, to the Falcons, um. Chris, I'm a type of gentleman. I'm going to ride the fence with you a little bit because I'm going to take from what I heard from other people out there. I'm going to say the competition. Okay. Going back to last year, you know, Arthur Smith is from the 901. His dad is the owner of FedEx, so I consider him a home guy. Be honest with me, Chris. The guy won seven games last year. His coaching job last season graded from an A to an F. Probably, uh, probably a C plus, and I'm I'm going to give him that C plus on a little bit of a curve, only because I think in your first year as a head coach, there's some learning moments. You're going to make some mistakes. You're going to screw some things up. I think that happens, and I think he did. Um, so again, I I would probably give him a C plus. Um, they needed to find more touches for Kyle Pitts in particular in the red zone last year, which they weren't able to do. Um, you know, they, they haven't really done a whole lot with the offensive line this off season. I am assuming they like the guys they've got there and feel like they're going to develop and take the next step forward. Falcons have been in salary cap hell. I think everybody that knows the Falcons that follows the Falcons knows kind of what they have been having to deal with from a salary cap standpoint. This is the last year of that. Uh, this should be the, you know, you've hit bottom. Uh, this should be when things start to bounce back a little bit. They're going to have a lot of money to spend next year in free agency. So let's see what this team looks like. Uh, you've got a, a young quarterback coming in now and Des Ritter. Um, you got Marcus, excuse me, Marcus Mariota here. And, um, you know, I think Mariota starts the season, but at some point in time, they're going to turn it over to Des Ritter as they should. Um, I think, you, if you're the Falcons, you want to know what you've got in this guy as soon as you possibly can, um, because I think the Falcons are probably going to be looking at another top 10 draft pick and a very talented quarterback class in next year's draft. Now I heard someone from the competition was real intimate with the number eight pick. He could not believe they didn't take the offensive tackle Charles Cross out of Mississippi State. And it was saying Drake London had to be one of the worstest picks in Falcon history. Talk to me, Chris, on that. Well, I, I think we need about five years before we can we we really know how that plays out, right? Um I think uh look, Drake London before that ankle injury last year, it was uh man, he was pretty special. At, at USC, um, the catch radius, as they talk about with him. I mean, he's got all the physical attributes, Vince. He checks all the boxes that you want to see a wide receiver check. Um, now, number one, he needs to stay healthy. Looks like he is. Looks like he's in great shape. Um, I think the good thing that should really make you happy if you're a Falcons fan is it seems like this guy showed up for mini camp and he's been ready to work and he's worked all summer 
And I think that should make you feel good about what he can be. Um, you know, we'll see. Look, sometimes, you know, uh, Terry Fontenot has the philosophy of, of we're going to draft best available. And in their mind, uh, Drake London was the best available player there at, at number eight, and that's the direction they went. And look, I saw some early projections that had Drake London going in the top five. So, you know, again, I think to try to spout off on, you know, one, and I understand, you know, in this business here, you got to have a hot take. Um, I, I get it, but you know, if, if we're going to have, uh, if we're going to use a little common sense, you really need a couple of years to be able to determine. I, I'll be honest, Vince, I've been kind of critical of the draft class last year. Um, you know, the offensive lineman from last year didn't get it done. Uh, uh, Richie Grant couldn't get on the field. The only way he got on the field late is because they had no other choice because of injuries. Um, you know, and again, now he was forced into a situation where I understand he played a lot of nickel last year. His position is a safety. I get it, but for a guy that's taken in the second round, you expect the you expect to see a little bit more out of him. And um, you know, I, I think this. I, I don't want to say year two is a a make or break season for him, but it's one of those where you want to see a guy give you something uh, when you take it, take him with, uh, you know, a second round pick and, you know, Richie Grant needs to show something this year. No more, no more, no more. He, you know, doesn't know the defense. Well, any of that, you got a year plus in this system. Now, Uh, now it's time to show up and show out. Okay. From the bottom of your heart, your football knowledge, you growing up in East Tennessee, Led out there for me. What what were you? What grade would you give the draft class this year, overall? And the players that you really like out of the draft class that they had this year in twenty twenty two. You know, I I know that a lot of people gave the Falcons an A um, for their draft class. Um, a lot of the national guys were in love with with what the Falcons did. Um, again, I, I'm probably right now going to give it a B minus. Um, I do like Arnold Ebicady. That's a possession of of need. Falcons need to find somebody to get after the quarterback. They brought in Ebicady. They brought in D'Angelo Malone. You got two guys that are athletic, should be able to come off the end. Um, the one thing I like, again, about Des Ritter, now that we've had a little time to reflect and he's had a chance to go through the, the rookie minicamp and then the minicamp with the vets, you know, if you heard the comments Arthur Smith said last week, he said that he liked – where Des Ritter was above the shoulders. And I think that is a pretty telling comment from Arthur Smith. I don't think there's any doubt. Des Ritter has the physical tools to be able to play quarterback. I mean, he's a guy, he makes all the throws. He's got great speed. He's mobile. He's all those things. Question becomes with a lot of young quarterbacks in the NFL, can they make the reads and the checks that they need to make? And so far, it sounds like Des Ritter has been able to do that. Now, let's see what he looks like come training camp. And especially, I think we're going to get a long look at him in that first preseason game against the Lions. Um, let's see what he looks like. Because, look, Vince, I think you and I could go out there in T-shirts and pair of shorts and maybe complete a couple of passes. I think I could. I think I can throw like a five-yard out maybe. But I want to see what's it look like then when the bullets start flying and you've got some guy across from you that's that's trying to take your head off that's where we separate guys and so if if Des Ritter can continue on this path that he's on then I think there's reason to be excited there I'll tell you one other guy too uh is Tyler Algier the running back I talked mm-hmm. with Jamal Anderson a couple of weeks ago and I asked Jamal who played it at Utah, I asked him about Algier, who played at BYU, and he, you know, Jamal said, hey, I'll be honest, he reminds me a lot of me, and I think that should get Falcons fans excited. They need some help. That running back room has has been remade once again, um, and rather than, you know, go with a veteran like a Mike Davis or a Todd Gurley, I think 
Tyler Algier is going to be given every opportunity to tote that rock for the Falcons this year. Final words of this evening, Mr. Christopher Goforth, <laughs> the win in total for the Atlanta Falcons in 2022. Hey, look, I think if they can get back to seven again, I think seven's the ceiling really um, based on how I think a lot of things will have to go right for them to get to seven. Seven is the ceiling. I tend to think they, they're probably a five-win team. Um, they'll be back picking in the you know top six, seven, eight again in the draft. And but next year they should be <clears throat> excuse me, they should be significantly better next year. Well, it's been an honor. It's been a pleasure to have Mr. Christopher Goforth for 92.9. I want to say special thanks to our producer, Mr. Logan Landis, for making it happen this evening. Thank you. And if you like the video, share the video. It's been special this evening to talk Tennessee football and Atlanta Falcons. So my final words, and I want to say thank Mr. Goforth. It's just like the great band Chicago. This is how I feel. Saturday in the park. It's the 4th of July. People dancing, people laughing. I miss selling ice cream. Before we end our show today, we'd like to mention one more time this show is presented by Bet Online. Thank you, Mr. Christopher Goforth, the best man that does it at a high level, 92.9, the best in the business. Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate it. Appreciate it, Vince. Enjoyed the song, man. You keep singing. I'll come back on again. All right. Yes, sir. Thank you. Y'all be blessed here at 100 Yards of Football. What is your favorite moment from football history? What teams and players are you cheering on? And who will win it all? We want to hear from you, our listeners. Head over to 100 Yards of Football Sports Talk Radio's Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, or Twitch and leave us a comment. We might use your suggestion in an upcoming episode. Tune in daily to the podcast and watch our show live every week. We are 100 Yards of Football Sports Talk Radio on the Believe Podcast Network. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.